The scripture reading today is from Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And it's on page 961 in the Bibles that are in the chair racks. And if you don't have a Bible, please take one of these home with you. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Yes, Father, we do thank you for your word and that you speak to us. We thank you for your Son and that he came for us stood in our place so that we can stand in his. Speak to us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew's been building anticipation for this moment. Could you just turn me down a little bit? He's been building anticipation for this moment that we come to today, for this passage He's been showing us that Jesus has the royal lineage, that the prophecies point to him, that his history qualifies him, and that John the Baptist has prepared the way for him. So Matthew's been bringing us to this point, and now here he is. Here is the son of David, the Messiah, the hope of Israel, and then for the first time in Matthew, we see the man, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, and for the first time, we hear him speak. We'll see today that the greatest revelation of Jesus is that he is the beloved son of God. And we'll also see today that Jesus has identified himself with us. He stands in our place. Now last week we were looking at John the Baptist preparing the way in the message that he was declaring that. We saw that in chapter 3 verses 1 through 12. Do you remember the Singular most important message of John's, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John is proclaiming this to that generation of Jews. That was the message for them. This generation, they would be the ones who would see the coming of the kingdom. The kingdom was coming so soon, it was almost upon them that the need to repent was urgent. They had to do it now. It could not delay. There was no waiting, for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And so the people were receiving this message, and they were responding in obedience and being baptized. And John's baptism that he was doing there in the Jordan River, it was a sign or a symbol of repentance. Right? In Mark chapter 1, verse 4, we hear that it was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I said last week, 
God used John to spark an absolute revival among the Jews. And they're coming from all over Palestine. They're traveling from nearly as far as 100 miles away to come to the Jordan River to come hear this, this prophet and the spirit of Elijah proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And even beyond that, diaspora Jews were coming from across the Roman Empire. Right? We know that Jews as far as Alexandria in Egypt and others in Ephesus in western Turkey, they had received John's baptism. We see this in the book of Acts. And, so, and very likely there were, there were Jews coming from even further to see John, to hear what this prophet was proclaiming. We can never know how great that revival was, but we do know the throngs of Jews flocking to the Jordan River made all the political and religious leaders of that time very nervous. They were worried that a rebellion was arising, that there were these hundreds if not thousands of people there in the wilderness being led by a single man, seeming all to be very receptive to what this man was directing them to do, and so they grew nervous. But despite their fears and their suspicions and their misunderstandings, the Jews were effectively converting. Right? They were repenting of their former lives and they were coming to God, perhaps for the first time leaving behind their godless lives, devoting themselves to covenantal relationship with Yahweh. This is conversion that's happening on the banks of the Jordan. Yes, God was using John to prepare the Jews for the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And among those masses grouped on the bank of the Jordan River is just an ordinary Jewish face. And nothing in his appearance sets him apart at all. Just another face. He's journeyed likely more than 60 miles to come to this place, to come to this moment. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Do you hear the singular purpose in that one sentence? Jesus has come from Galilee, likely from Nazareth, not to hear John, not to see the spectacle, but to be baptized. That's why he's there. Now I get the sense that that day that Jesus was, you know, among the crowd, listening for a while, listening to John preach, just like everyone else. And then John gives some sort of signal. There's a transition in what's going on. And there's this call for anybody who's, who's repentant, who wants to enter into a right relationship with God. And yet the last thing that he is is unremarkable. Right? He's so much more than what anybody there realizes. So much more than what eyes can see. They're standing in the Jordan River. Even John doesn't know exactly who's walking into the water. This unremarkable-looking man is the humble king clothed in the unseen glories of heaven, and those glories are about to absolutely explode right by the Jordan River. Verse 14, John would have prevented him, Jesus, saying, I need, you to, be, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So certainly John recognized Jesus. They knew each other. They were cousins. 
But whether God revealed it in, in that moment or in some moment prior, John knew that his cousin was the Messiah. On some level, he understood this. And so when it becomes clear that Jesus is approaching in the water, he intends to be baptized by John, and John immediately objects. Right? And it's not because he's trying, trying to thwart the plans of Jesus. He's not trying to stop the Messiah. It's because he understands that he is far, far inferior to Jesus. That's why he says back in verse 11, which we looked at last week, he said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So there in the water, John the Baptist effectively rebuffs the approaching Messiah. And the reason is because he said, he, he's effectively saying, I need, I need your spirit and fire baptism. You do not need my water baptism. I need your baptism. So who am I to baptize you? And you can be sure that at that moment that John is saying this to, to this man, every head turns to Jesus, turns to this man. Who in the world is this? that is greater than John the Baptist, that John says he needs to be baptized by. Who is this man? And then that man speaks. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fit, fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. The first words of Jesus in the New Testament. And I think it's wonderfully fitting that these words are incredibly simple on the surface, easy to understand, and then as you dig, you begin to see an incredible depth here, complexity, and guess what we're going to do today? We're going digging. It's such a simple statement. Jesus says, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Yeah, it is fitting. And so you can move on with that understanding. When Jesus is getting baptized, it's part of the process of fulfilling all righteousness. And it's, and it's adequate. That's a good understanding. It's true. It's enough. And I like that even, I, I love that God has made it so that even the simple faith of a child is enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. And though childlike faith and a, and a simple understanding is enough, let us together strive to go deeper, to understand more, to exercise our mind that we might know our God more intimately, more truly, more profoundly. Do we not want to commune with him more deeply? Yes. And there is no end to the depth of our God. And he created us to be enlivened and enraptured and impassioned and overjoyed by his glorious depths. So it's a simple statement. Let us fulfill all righteousness. But with just a moment of reflection, you realize how strange that statement. How bizarre. And it's so strange that Christian scholars have been debating the meaning of it for millennia. Because Jesus was perfect, right? He was completely righteous. He was sinless. 
He had no need for repentance. And yet, getting baptized for repentance and the forgiveness of sins was part of fulfilling all righteousness. So what's going on? How does Jesus need repentance? The whole scene forces you to ask, does receiving John's baptism of repentance, or, or how does receiving John's baptism of repentance help Jesus fulfill all righteousness? What in the world is going on? And I believe there are two ways that we can answer this question. The first is the most simple way. It was the Father's will that Jesus get baptized. And so Jesus was getting baptized, receiving the baptism of repentance out of obedience to his Father, which means, conversely, if Jesus failed to do this, would not the will of the Father have been broken? Righteousness would have been broken. And so this, in fulfillment of the Father's plan, is fulfilling righteousness. But why does the Father plan for Jesus to, be get, to, to get baptized in this manner? And that takes us oh so deep and into the second reason. The second reason Jesus receives the baptism of repentance is to identify himself with us. I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. We're going to see it next week. Jesus, and, and he's doing it here, Jesus again and again takes up the history of Israel. He, he lives the history of Israel. And next week we'll look at a little bit more closely how the baptism is reliving the history of Israel. But that's for next week. Jesus is taking up Israel's history because he is Israel in a single man. He is Israel. He is the only Israelite who ever lived truly fulfilling God's law. He is the only Israelite ever to be completely righteous. Thus, as the foremost of all the descendants of Abraham in righteousness, Jesus is Israel. He is the promised seed. You read through the Old Testament and it becomes glaringly obvious that the nation Israel failed and they failed, and they failed, and then they did it again and again, continually falling under the judgment of God for rejecting God, for choosing to chase after their own selfishness and pride, to worship other gods, and sin destroyed in them any chance of ever being righteous. Which is true not just for Israel, but it's true for us. Sin destroys in us any chance of being righteous. And the consequence for that is that we cannot be with our righteous God. And so we must be separated from Him because we are unrighteous. And the consequence for our unrighteousness is to be eternally condemned, eternally separated. What Christ calls hell. And so Jesus enters the water of the Jordan River to be what Israel could not be. Everyone who received John's baptism of repentance, they would sin again. 
and they would go on sinning, but Jesus would never sin. He'd never sinned before. He would never sin after. He would live the perfect life that is meant to follow repentance. The life of a new creation. And he would do it for everyone who could not. So Jesus receives the baptism of repentance for the very same reason that he received the cross. He did it on our behalf. He did it in our place. He did what we could not do. And we cannot truly live out repentance sinlessly. But Jesus, he lived the sinless life. His life for our life. His righteousness in place of our sinfulness. He would be the one, as Isaiah prophesied, to carry our sorrows, to bear our iniquity, to make many righteous. And by making many righteous, Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness. Right? Turn in your Bibles right now. We're going to do this a little bit today. Turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 8. I want you to look at this passage. Romans chapter 8, I'm looking at verse 3 and halfway through 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We'll stop there. Do you see that's exactly what I'm talking about? Jesus stood in our place. He did what we could not do to fulfill all righteousness for us. Because we couldn't. Because we cannot. We need Christ to do it for us. And I think that this is the most beautiful fulfillment of the law. Leviticus 19.18 You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And what stunning love walked into the water that day. What demonstration of love that he would say that the king of glory would identify himself with sinners like us, the spotless, perfect, pure, holy son of God, standing in the place of sinners. Now, it's very likely, almost it's definite, that John did not know everything that Jesus meant when Jesus said, let me be baptized, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. He didn't need to know everything, and that's okay, but what he did need to do was to trust and obey. And so the baptizer deferred to the will of the mightier one, and he placed his hands on the the perfectly righteous Messiah, and he plunged him into the water. Verse 16 of Matthew 3. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him. So Matthew is telling us that 
something amazing begins to happen once Jesus gets out of the water, right? He, he leaves the water. He's back on the, Jordan, uh, on the banks of the Jordan. I wonder, once he steps onto dry ga- ground, does the crowd part? Because clearly there was a multitude of people. Does the crowd part? Do they form this semicircle around him, this strange one that John says is mightier than him? Do they marvel at him? Well, if they were not marveling, you know that they are thunderstruck when all of the sudden the heavens are rent. Imagine the scene. In their midst stood this man from Nazareth, this Galilean, Jesus, righteous before the Father, the fullness of what God had always intended Israel to be, finally a holy human being, perfect, the perfect son. And when Jesus was baptized. Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. What would it have been like to see, hear that? How is the crowd not just on their faces? Maybe they were. They clearly experienced something supernatural, and we don't know exactly what was available to their perception. They experienced something, though. Matthew's narrating this entire story, episode, from Jesus' perspective, though. Do you see that? The heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending. Right? So this is what Jesus is experiencing. And then when the Father speaks, this is my beloved Son, that's spoken in in the hearing of the crowd. Like it's an announcement to those who are listening. This is my beloved Son. But what Matthew wants us to see and what is most important is that this is an experience for Jesus. This is a gift, an affirmation for Jesus. From Father to Son, Yes, this is the most raw and unmediated declaration of God's own view of Jesus. The Father looks upon His Son and He sees the apple of His eye, His one and only precious Son, and He cannot help but in that moment to express His great love for Him. My beloved Son! And we cannot fathom the flood of of joy and satisfaction and love and purpose that went rushing through Christ's heart in this moment. And you know that it did. All the glories of heaven were brimming in that extraordinary Galilean, and the kingdom of heaven was right there in him. And the Spirit of God was resting upon him. You know, the Spirit of God was always upon him from the moment that he was conceived in the womb by the Holy Spirit The Spirit of God was resting upon him, was in him. But this dove descending, it's something like an official sign or announcement that this Jesus of Nazareth is imbued with the Holy Spirit. Right? He who will baptize with the Holy Spirit is filled with the Holy Spirit. He has the Holy Spirit bursting out of him. That's why he can baptize others with the Holy Spirit. And the spirit like a dove is significant too. 
at creation, before creation, there was the Spirit of God brooding over the surface of the waters, brooding being like the motion of a bird. And the dove, like the dove sent from the ark to find land that's been cleansed, new land, because the dove is the signal that something new is beginning. A new creation is dawning. The kingdom of heaven is about to break upon the earth, and the one that would bring heaven to earth is the Son of God. But the Son of God, this name, it means so much more than begotten by the Father or or coming from the Father. It also reveals that Jesus is the heir of David. Back in our David series, Ben Osenbach preached from 2 Samuel 12, and we saw terrible fallout from David's adultery and murder and conspiracy, and just a hard chapter. But tucked into that chapter is the birth of Solomon, the son that God had appointed to take David's throne, the son that was the rightful king. 2 Samuel 12, we read this, Bathsheba bore a son, and David called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Jedidiah is not a very popular name, but it's a very powerful name. David, the name David means beloved. The name Jedidiah takes it up a notch. It means beloved of the Lord. The rightful heir to the throne was named Beloved of the Lord. And a thousand years later, emerging from the Jordan River, is the truest Beloved of the Lord, the Son of God. And he has come to claim the throne that has been vacant now for centuries, the Beloved of the Lord. Psalm 2, David writes what God speaks. As for me... This is God speaking. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And now David narrating. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Do you see these connections? Jesus is the beloved of the Lord. He is the Son begotten by the Father, and the nations are his heritage, and the earth his possession. Jesus is the Son of David, the Messiah, the King of all kings, who unites heaven and earth. But Jesus' kingship is different. And any king who's come before him, and any king that will ever come after him, because he is also the messianic Old Testament figure known as the suffering servant. The humble, lowly, suffering servant. And let's now turn in our Bibles over to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 of Isaiah 42. 
Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to the open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from their dungeons, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell them to you. Notice how verse 1 says, My servant, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. And when the Father speaks over Jesus in the Jordan, he says, with whom I am well pleased, or with whom my soul delights. So the Father, by saying what he says, it's not only a statement of affection, it's also a confirmation that Jesus is the Messiah, the Davidic Messiah, and he's the suffering servant Messiah from Isaiah 42. And now that Jesus has been baptized, identifying himself with sinners, the former things are passing away. Behold, new things are being declared. The kingdom of heaven has come. And it's no coincidence that at that moment, the heavens are opened. Right above Jesus, the bringer of heaven, And just like the suffering servant in Isaiah 42, the Spirit of God rests upon him. Awesome. Awesome announcement. Affection, prophetic confirmation, our righteousness. Now, we cannot miss something else that's happening amazing in this passage. Here, in a a single moment in time, the Father speaks, the Spirit descends, the Son stands. So look throughout your whole Bible. Maybe not right now. You will not find the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible. You will not find the doctrine of the Trinity overtly taught anywhere in the Bible, but right here is the Trinity for your senses to behold. Father, Son, and Spirit, all available for you to to see and hear and, and touch. The doctrine of the Trinity, as it's stated in our Articles of Faith, is as follows. There is one living and true God, eternally existent in three persons, These persons are equal in nature and divine perfection, and they execute distinct but harmonious offices in the work of creation, providence, 
and redemption. Yeah, that's a mind bender. There's one more important theological consideration that this passage forces us to consider. (laughs) Jesus is the Son of God, and God has declared, this is my Son. But the Son of God was never born. Jesus, the man, was born, but the Son of God was never born. God the Son existed in eternity past. He was the Word that was with God and the Word that was God. He was the Word that created the universe. He is the great I Am and Scripture. And yet Scripture tells us, as we saw in Psalm 2 when I read that, that the Son is begotten by the Father. Now, in this sense, begotten does not mean born from or created. The Father did not create the Son. No, he, it means, begotten means He sends forth the Son to reflect the image of the Father. In other words, the, the Father has sent forth the Son to perfectly reflect the image of the Father in the physical realm, in our world. And it's snowing. Praise the Lord. Glory inside of the church and glory outside. So this this idea of the Son being begotten as the, the preeminent image bearer of the Father, we see this expressed all throughout Scripture, but especially in Hebrews 1 verse 3. The Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So again, God the Son going forth from the Father to perfectly reflect the image of the Father. And when the Son was sent forth in happy obedience, he took on human flesh in the likeness of sinful flesh. And he was born as a man, Jesus of Nazareth. So are these not some deep waters? The Trinity, and as we saw last week, or sorry, a few weeks ago, the hypostatic union all come colliding together here in the baptism of Jesus. And honestly, though there is mighty depths crammed into these five verses, we've really just barely scratched the surface. Christ's wild stuff going on in the first century, probably 30 AD-ish, How does it apply to us? When we we saw Jesus receive the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and we know that he did not do it for himself because he was righteous. He did it for us, the unrighteous. He stood in our place and he identified himself with sinners, and he did the same on the cross when he stood in our place and he took our punishment for sins, and when we deserve to be forsaken by the Father, Christ was forsaken by the Father. So, so everywhere we read this, we get this overwhelming reality that dawns on us in Scripture that when we trust our lives to Jesus, when we place our faith in Him, we are united to Him. We are in him. He is our head. We are his body. We are the many members of him, his hands and his feet. We are united to him. And when we 
he got baptized, the baptism of repentance, to identify with us. When we get baptized, the baptism of the new covenant, we identify ourselves with him. Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You have been united to Christ when you trust in Jesus. And when you do trust in Jesus, the Father indwells you with the Holy Spirit. And the whole Trinity is at work in your life. So that Father, Son, and Spirit are together working for your salvation, that you would be righteous as Jesus is righteous, to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ from one degree of glory to another, so that you become a son of God. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6. When the fullness of time had come, which is right here in Matthew chapter 3, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Again, the entire trinity in that passage. So, brothers and sisters, by faith in Jesus Christ, you are sons and daughters of the Most High God, which means, and I hope that this does not land on you as some routine rote thing that you've heard in church before, but it means that you are the apple of God's eye. You are his beloved son, beloved daughter, if you are in Christ, if you are united to Christ, and that the Father now lavishes his unmerited, overflowing love upon you, endless rivers of this on you for ages upon ages. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you are loved. Do you know how tremendously you are loved? Without restraint, you are loved. Without measure, you are loved. And nothing can prevent the love of God from spilling out upon you. If you are in Christ, then even your greatest sins cannot prevent the love of God from spilling out upon you. Because when the Father looks at you, He doesn't see you and all of your mess and all of your sins. Do you know what He sees? He sees the one who came to stand in your place. He looks at you and He sees Jesus his beloved Son, in whom he is well pleased. And the Father's heart overflows at the sight of Jesus Christ in you. So by faith you have been united to Christ, and you bear his image, and there is nothing that the Father loves as much as he loves his Son. That's how the water's of the Jordan 
saturate us. And yet these glories do not come to us through water. They come to us because Jesus has baptized us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Yes, if you are in Christ, then you have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and of fire. And Father, we thank you for this incredible gift that you have given to us in the face of your Son, through the power of your Spirit, righteousness and life and adoption as sons and daughters, and you call us your own, and you give to us your unmerited, unfettered, unending love for which we praise you. We love you because you have first loved us. We thank you for Jesus that he came, the Son of God came in the flesh, that he stood in our place, that he received this baptism of repentance when our ability to live in righteousness is destroyed by our sins. We thank you for this gift and for your word. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.